Please remain standing for the reading of God's word this evening, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. God's holy and inspired word, though the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of it, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good good deposit entrusted to you. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. So it goes without saying that we don't like to be shamed. We don't want to be embarrassed, ridiculed, laughed at, or been seen as disgraceful or held in contempt. Rather, we generally want to be liked. We desire our lifestyle, our way of life to be respected, to be valued as worthwhile, To be seen as good. This is pretty much a basic human desire and value. We want to be honored. And yet when it comes to honor and shame, there is a scale, a way to measure it. And most often that scale is cultural. The broader society or culture sets what is honorable and what is shameful. Of course, any time culture is the yardstick, there's going to be differences and disagreements. For there are Numerous different cultures, and in any one culture, there are microcultures. Cultures uh, measure honor and shame differently, and thus there's going to be a clash. Well, Paul is definitely clashing on the matter, man, matter of honor within his society. What the culture of his day labeled as a horrible disgrace, Paul sees as an honor. And Paul passes on to us this gospel heritage He exhorts us to see the things the way he does. He wants us to see the glory in what the world calls shameful. So in this letter, Paul is now an old man in prison. And he knows that his death is drawing near. And so he's writing to Timothy, his spiritual son and heir, to pass on the gospel inheritance. He's encouraging Timothy to continue in the faith that he received from his mother and his grandmother. And particularly, Paul wants Timothy to persevere in the ministry of the gospel. He must fan into flame ministry that God bestowed upon Timothy through the laying on of hands, just as we are doing this evening. And there's two aspects to this gospel heritage that Paul is passing on to Timothy and so to us as the church. And the first is personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
We need to keep our faith rooted in Christ alone and pass this faith on to our children and to the next generation. But the second is the ministry itself, the offices of preacher and teacher. Just as Paul was steadfast in his apostolic office, so Timothy must persevere as the preacher he's been called to. And so also we as the church must maintain and pass along the ministry of the gospel. In fact, this this second aspect is at the center of Paul's thinking in this paragraph before us. And so he encourages Timothy with the gifts of God. He says, God has not called or given us a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power, love, and prudence. Christ has given us strength and wisdom in the spirit in order to remain steadfast in the ministry. And because God has given us this strength, he now shifts to the issue of shame. He says, you have a strong spirit, so don't be ashamed. Paul calls Timothy not to be embarrassed about the testimony of our Lord. Now, when you tell someone not to be ashamed, this assumes that either the person is feeling ashamed or there is some perceived shame. There is something about this testimony and about Paul's imprisonment that is disgraceful, or at least some think it is. But what is this? Well, it's the testimony about Christ, namely the gospel, which is centered upon the cross. And the cross is the public execution of Jesus as a criminal of the state. Indeed, there are few things more shameful in the Greco-Roman world than crucifixion. It's hard for us to understand this, just how reprehensible the crucifixion was in the first century. For over the centuries of church history, the church has turned the cross into an image of love, salvation, or a little trinket on a necklace. But in Paul's culture, crucifixion had none of these romantic or cute associations. In fact, the cross symbolized the very opposite. Crucifixion was a symbol of defeat, hopelessness, weakness, and the worst shame possible. To proclaim that your Lord and Savior, who was one who was crucified, rang with the tones of being irrational and foolish in Paul's day. The preaching of the cross immediately opened you up to ridicule, scorn, to be laughed at. And it was similar for those who were in prison. To be in jail or to be associated with one in jail was often quite shameful. It hurt your own reputation and standing in life in all different sorts of ways. Thus, for Timothy to be loyal to Paul, who's in the slammer, this would socially... um, show him to be appearing to side with a terrorist or a gangster, a criminal. And you don't hang out with criminals. Bad company corrupts good character. Timothy, you need to end it with this Paul guy. Yet this would have, yes, this would have been the cultural pressure on Timothy. And as you know, culture always gets inside the church. So to meet this pressure head-on, Paul exhorts Timothy not to be shamed of the cross of Christ, nor Paul's own chains. In essence, Paul is giving us a new scale with which to measure honor and shame. 
He's contrasting a heavenly scale versus an earthly one. From an earthly point of view, Christ's cross and Paul's imprisonment is the height of disgrace. But from the angle of heaven, these are honorable, even glorious. Hence, to balance the exhortation not to be ashamed, Paul calls Timothy to share in his same sufferings. By definition, you participate in what is honorable and you avoid what is shameful. So Paul then doesn't just say the gospel is not shameful, but it's even honorable. Suffering for the gospel is scornful to the world, but it's honorable in God's eyes. Thus, Paul is calling us to think correctly. He is summoning us to value the gospel and suffering according to heaven's scale and not the world's. And this is quite fitting for us today as the gospel, once again, is not very honorable in our culture. Exclusive faith in Christ? Nowadays, this is linked more to bigotry, intolerance, even oppression. The cross of Christ has been called child abuse. The true gospel is generally ridiculed and held in contempt in our day. And so we too feel the pressure to turn away from the gospel, to water it down, to adulterate it, to be quiet about the gospel so that we show ourselves as more upstanding and respectable in society. But Paul tells us, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't succumb to the cultural pressures to the world's point of view. Rather, embrace the gospel. Share in the suffering for Jesus. For this is truly honorable in the eyes of heaven. Indeed, now that Paul has exhorted us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to see it as honorable, he shifts to show us what is honorable about the testimony of Christ. For if you're told that something is honorable, you want to know why. And so Paul tells us. And he does by giving us another one of his gospel poems. Yes, in verses 9 and 10, we find a very artful and poetic summary of the gospel. It's basically that Paul mentions the gospel and the power of God, and he breaks forth into praise as if he's in a musical. Why is the gospel so honorable? Because it is about God who saved us. Now, we use this phrase a great deal, but we should not let its frequency diminish its profundity. God saved us. Salvation is our dearest treasure. It's our highest good. And we have this salvation from God himself. And the God who saved us also called us. By a holy calling, God summoned you to himself. The movement here is from salvation, an external work of history, to calling the personal act of God, applying this salvation to you. Calling means that God knows you personally. He knows your own name. By the gospel and the Holy Spirit, God brings you to himself. Once we were lost, alone and dead in sin, But with God's calling, he finds you. He makes you alive and he gives you a home in himself and in his redeemed family. For also God's calling is holy. It is irresistible 
and it's transformative. That is, the call of God makes you holy. It sets you apart as the apple of God's eye, and it recreates you after the image of Christ. Moreover, Christ's summons of you is not by our works. And what a beautiful truth. Our salvation does not depend upon our good deeds. For as you know, the works of humans, even the best of them, are fickle, impermanent, and broken. One moment we can act like an angel, and the next like a demon. One second we want a certain thing, and then something entirely different the next. If our salvation is based upon our works, what hope would we have? None. What assurance would would we enjoy? None. Rather, our salvation arises from God's purpose. God saved you because he wanted to. And God's purpose doesn't change. He doesn't flip-flop his mind back and forth. But God's will endures forever. Likewise, God called us, as Paul says next, by grace. We don't deserve the favor and the blessings that come from heaven. In fact, we deserve the opposite. The wrath and judgment of God for all our arrogant rebellions and our stubborn ingratitude. But in grace... God bestows upon you all the riches of his salvation for you as a free gift. Yet note, when this astounding grace was given to you, Paul says God grants you his grace in Christ, it's only through the Son, and the Lord gave it before times eternal. That is, the Father put his grace upon you in eternity past, before the world, even the stars, were created. How does one even wrap your mind around this? Before the world was created, before you were born, God knew you by name and he sealed his grace upon you in the Son. This is the truly eternal purpose of God that never changes. This is the assurance of your salvation. And yet, even though God gave his grace in eternity past, it's revealed in history. Grace was given way back then in the primordial past, but it's been revealed now. And it was disclosed through the manifestation of Christ. In his person and work, we behold the grace of our redemption. What God willed before the world was born, Christ accomplished in the history of this fallen age. And look what Christ accomplished in his appearing. It says he abolished death. In his death upon the cross, Jesus nullified mortality. Death. Is this not the scourge of humanity? Death is the widow maker, the builder of orphanages. Death scars us with wounds that never seem to heal. Hospitals, seat belts, safety measures... These are our feeble weapons against death, but death can easily plow through them all and snatch us away. And yet Christ abolished death. He defeated this mighty foe. What the world, the world may see the cross as a defeat, but heaven sees the cross of Christ as the glory of the greatest victory ever. For through the cross, Jesus abolished death And he brought to light life. 
through the grave and the darkness of the tomb, Jesus arrived at the bright morning light of the resurrection. Indeed, Jesus didn't just bring forth another earthly life, but he brought forth immortality. But again, what a remarkable line. For the Greeks and the Romans, immortality was the sole prerogative of the gods. Only the gods were immortal and the few heroes were granted immortality by their deeds. Immortality was seen as the greatest honor, the brightest glory, which was by and large impossible for mortal humans. But into this culture, Paul says, Jesus, who died on the cross, brought forth immortality for all who believe in him. Talk about a complete reversal of the world's honor and shame scale. What the world deems the most horrendous shame, the cross, in reality is the manifestation of supreme honor, Christ's resurrection, and immortality as the gift of God. Yes, this is the true honor of the gospel. And this is why Paul is not ashamed, even in chains. For as he says, this is the gospel, that he was appointed to be a herald, an apostle, a teacher. His whole office and life is for the proclamation of the gospel. He suffers for this gospel freely, and he's not ashamed. The world scorns Paul as a fool. They laugh at him for trusting in a criminal who was executed. They deride Paul as a prisoner for getting what he deserves. Shameful is as shameful does. But Paul is not ashamed. Paul will not be ashamed for he knows that the gospel is not a disgrace. But it is actually the very honor and glory of God and of Christ our Savior. Instead of being ashamed, Paul then exudes with the confidence in Christ. As he says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. His confidence comes from the object of his faith, faith, Jesus. And because his eye is on Christ, Paul is convinced, he is sure that Christ is able. But what is he convinced that Christ can do? Well, that Christ will guard what has been entrusted to Paul, or more literally, that he will keep my deposit. What's this? What's this deposit entrusted to Paul? It's the gospel treasure, particularly the duty to proclaim the gospel. Thus, Paul is convinced that Jesus will keep the gospel until that day, the final day of the Lord. But how does this figure into Paul not being ashamed? Well, it does because Paul's about to die. He knows that execution for the gospel is just around the corner. And how is death often read? As a defeat. You kill the teacher, and so dies his teaching. This is an age-old technique. When you don't like someone's doctrine, kill off those who teach it, and soon the doctrine will die off. And this often works in human history. And so the question is, will the gospel die with Paul? Surely many in the Roman world were hoping that this would happen. For preaching the shameful gospel, Paul was locked into prison. 
Paul has been abandoned by many of his disciples and followers. And soon he's going to meet an early grave. Surely this could be read as losing. But not by Paul. He is thoroughly convinced that Christ will preserve the gospel even to that last day. His death is not a defeat. It is not shameful. And it will not hinder the gospel from going forth to many more. And why? Because Christ is powerful. Christ is bigger than Paul. And Christ will guard the deposit of the gospel entrusted to Paul even to the end of history. Thus, Paul can confidently pass on the gospel to Timothy, to the next generation of the church, and us tonight to a new minister, because Christ is in power. Thus, he tells Timothy to follow his example. We are to follow the pattern of sound words. That is, we're told to hold to the orthodox doctrine of salvation. Thus, first... We follow Paul in a way that's theological. Sound words are the true doctrines of all of God's scripture. These are to be held on to and preserved. But the second way we image Paul is the manner of our doctrine. We hold on to the sound doctrine in faith and in love. This is our Christian life. First, we believe the doctrines that we teach and preach, and we pass them on to the next generation, but we do this in love. We don't use the truth as a club, as an excuse to be rude or mean, but the love of Christ must permeate and characterize all our teaching and instruction. And love is patient, it's kind, and it seeks the good of others. As Reformed Christians, we definitely need to take this to heart. By all means, let us hold to the truth, but let us do so in love. But there's one final way that we follow Paul. As he tells Timothy next, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Again, the deposit is the gospel and its ministry. The gospel must be protected, defended, and maintained in all its purity. This is the charge that Paul gives to the church and especially to the gospel ministry. And it's one that we get the privilege to pass on to a new minister tonight. At all costs, the deposit must be guarded. And yet this solemn command takes on new layers of meaning from the context here. First, we have the strength to do this most challenging and dangerous task of protecting the gospel. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ dwells within our hearts. And the Spirit is not weak. The Spirit is not cowardly. But the Spirit who lives in you is mighty. Indeed, the Spirit of God is one of power, love, and prudence. The Spirit is all sufficient for you and for us to guard the gospel. Against the scorn of the world, we need the courage and strength to proclaim Jesus. As you know, it can be scary to talk about Christ when you know you will be laughed at or worse. Well, the Spirit is your bravery and your courage. 
Likewise, against the hatred of the world, it's so easy to retaliate in hatred. But we must love our enemies. We need to return hatred with love, and the Spirit is your love to do so. Finally, we need prudence, the wisdom of knowing what to say and when to speak. And the Spirit is your wisdom. And yet there's one more layer to this exhortation to guard the gospel deposit. Here in verse 14, what Paul tells us to do is what he said confidently Christ does in verse 12. Thus he roots our duty in the person and work of Jesus. And what a comfort this for us, for it means that Christ ultimately preserves the gospel through us. It doesn't rest primarily on us and our feeble efforts. Rather, Christ works through us. He uses us despite ourselves and our shortcomings. That at best, we are crooked sticks. But Paul can draw, or Christ can draw a straight line even with us. As well as this reminds us that Christ's power is greater than anything the world can throw at us, even death itself. The world can slay us, but our death does not nullify the gospel. It doesn't stop the gospel from going forward. For Christ abolished death, and he brought to light immortality. So then dying for the gospel, dying in Christ, this is now our greatest honor. For this is when we go to be with the Lord. It's when we will taste that glorious victory of Christ's resurrection. Thus, let us not be ashamed of the gospel in life, in our ministry, and even in death. But let us boast in the cross of Christ, for Christ is able to keep us through life, to keep us safe from the world, and even through death until that great day the day of Christ's resurrection, when he will come back and bring us to glory. Thus, may he hasten that day, and may we, as the church, keep the deposit of the gospel until he comes again. Amen. Let's pray.